The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how gas stations actually make money and their prospects for the future. Steve Wozniak says, don't mess with space. And a timeless question for the ages, how many s'mores could you make from the giant Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. You know the refrain that movie theaters don't make their money from the ticket sales, but rather from concessions? That's not exactly true. The profit margins are much higher on concessions, sure, but they still make a lot more of their profit from ticket sales than people tend to think, especially ever since that secret fact started getting thrown around. But one place that really does rely on their version of concessions for profit? Gas stations. According to Zachary Crockett in The Hustle, gas stations are only taking home a small fraction per gallon of gas sold, and when the price of oil goes up, they might even be losing money. Quote, according to Ibis World, gas stations make an average net margin of just 1.4% on their fuel. That's far lower than the 7.7% average across all industries and ranks beneath other notoriously low-margin businesses like grocery stores at 2.5% and car dealerships at 3.2%, end quote. First, Crockett points out that the majority of gas stations in the U.S., at least, are owned by individual operators who only own one station. So these are people who are franchisees for name-brand oil companies like Shell, Chevron, or Texaco, and some others run their own generic places and buy gas themselves on the open market. So when we're talking about operators losing out on money here, we're not necessarily talking about the giant corporations, but kind of, for some, small businesses. But how do they end up with such a small fraction of the profit? Crockett breaks it down like this. Let's say you buy a gallon of gas for $3.18, a steal here in New York City. $1.63 of that, a full 51%, is going to the crude oil itself. $0.55 goes towards the refining process, another $0.55 goes to taxes, $0.25 goes to transporting the now gasoline to the gas stations, leaving you with, if you've been doing the quick math here in your head, just $0.20. That's $0.20 going to the gas station owner. But then you've got everything else, like payroll, utility bills, insurance, etc., bringing the average profit per gallon to just $0.5 to $0.07. That's it. Now, Crockett does admit that gas station owners claimed a wide variance of profit when they spoke with him. Some went over a quarter, some said one cent. But to put this into stark reality, let's say that your gas station sells 4,000 gallons a day, and you're genuinely making a profit of five cents a gallon. You're still only making $200 a day from gas. 
Despite that, most stations won't raise their prices too much because they know that it'll deter customers. As you well know, gas stations tend to be clustered together, and the competition that proximity breeds keeps their prices in check. And a lot of them are even reluctant to raise prices too much even when the price of oil goes up because they don't want to lose customers to some of their competitors. So where do they make their money? Their concessions, or, well, the convenience stores that 80% of gas stations have. Crockett notes that convenience store purchases account for just under a third of the average gas station revenue, but make up 70% of the profit. While recent numbers put 44% of gas station customers as going inside the store, and a third of those making a purchase, those numbers are decreasing. You know, with more pay-at-the-pump options, less and less people are going inside, especially in the age of COVID. Plus, gas station convenience stores are well-known to have some of the highest crime rates of any business, which makes people stay away, but also causes the practical loss of $761 annually on average per gas station in America. And less people are buying gas at all. From 1995 to today, gas stations around the U.S. reduced in number from 195,000 to 115,000. Which is a good thing in terms of the environment, of course, and gas stations that can pivot to electric charging stations are doing so. But installing just one of those costs $100,000. And while EV sales are expected to skyrocket in the coming decades, that's a tough cost to justify right now when there are so few on the road. But if they can't pivot to electric, maybe some of these gas stations can pivot to something else and take advantage of whatever the best-selling thing in their convenience store is. You know, people are still going to go to Wawa even if they don't need gas. Same with 7-Eleven. You know, both of those don't even function as a gas station in a lot of cases. And Crockett shared this fun fact... KFC actually began at a gas station. The actual Colonel Sanders ran a Shell franchise location in North Corbin, Kentucky, and served customers fried chicken, country ham, biscuits, and more. And it was while he was running that gas station that he was named a Kentucky Colonel by the governor, a civilian title and highest honor in the state. After his competitor shot one of his employees, there was a literal shootout between the two gas stations. I guess it was a combination of that and cooking such good chicken that elicited the honor. That was back in 1935. It would be several years of selling his chicken in various motels he bought, fires, war, and divorce before KFC became something like we know it today in the early 1950s. But yeah, Colonel Sanders managed to pivot from gas to global corporations, so maybe some of these other franchisees will be able to do so as well. On Sunday, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak tweeted out a Super Bowl-style stock footage commercial. You know, the kind where a gravelly-voiced middle-aged man narrates so broadly about the world and us that you have no clue what the commercial might actually be for. Is it a credit card company, a web hosting service, the Church of Scientology? Who knows? Fortunately, Wozniak gave us a hint in his tweet, writing, quote, A private space company is starting up unlike the others. End quote. Oh no, is Steve Wozniak trying to hop into the billionaire space race? I mean, sure, the tweet said that they're not like the others, and the video specifically used the line, it's not a race, but that's the same empty sentiment all the others would spout despite any of their actions. 
Now, officially, we won't know what this private company called Privateer is going to get up to until sometime later this week. Wozniak and co-founder Alex Fielding will be announcing more at the Amos Tech 2021 conference, which runs today through Saturday in Maui. But... The talented sleuths over at Gizmodo managed to find a hint via a press release for a completely unrelated 3D titanium alloy printer called Desktop Metal. That company must be working with Privateer because they secured a testimonial about 3D titanium printing from Wozniak and described him as the co-founder of Privateer Space. And then, in what surely must have been a huge breach of an NDA considering that this press release went live in August, Desktop Metal goes on to describe Privateer Space as, quote, a new satellite company focused on monitoring and cleaning up objects in space, end quote. So there you have it. Wozniak and Fielding are not trying to become astronauts themselves, colonize Mars, or become NASA's de facto space chauffeur. No, they actually want to help clean up space and make sure that it's safe and usable by generations going forward. As Gizmodo points out, quote, Space has become a dumping ground for dead satellites and launch vehicle rockets, so much so that in 2019, NASA called Low Earth Orbit the world's largest garbage dump, with nearly 6,000 tons of waste. NASA has warned that space junk threatens spacegoers with garbage hurtling up to seven times faster than a bullet and reports that even paint flecks have smashed shuttle windows. The agency is currently monitoring 27,000 pieces of larger space junk. Cleanup will cost money that the U.S. government isn't allocating. Last year, former NASA Administrator Jim Brindenstein urged Congress to fund a $15 million cleanup mission, tweeting, In the last two weeks, there have been three high-concern potential conjunctions. Debris is getting worse. The most recent space funding bill, which has passed the Senate, hasn't set aside those funds, but directs the Office of Science and Technology Policy to evaluate the situation. Former NASA scientist Donald Kessler famously predicted in 1978 that the densifying minefield will grow exponentially more dangerous for decades to come as future collisions erupt in more junk. Last year, he told Scientific American that space is long overdue for catastrophe. End quote. And while NASA and the U.S. government haven't yet specifically allocated funds towards cleanup efforts, the world won't have to rely solely on privateer, if indeed this is what they're doing. The U.K. and Japan have been funding a company called Astroscale, which is currently testing magnetic docking systems to collect space junk and then use the Earth's atmosphere to burn it all up. There are research teams around the world that have been working to develop other solutions. There's the Electro-Optic Systems, or EOS, from Australia that would zap space debris with ground-based lasers to push it out of the way of potential collisions. Not unlike NASA's DART mission that's going to try the same method for asteroids, except they'll be using a whole spacecraft instead of lasers. A British project called Remove Debris is trying out nets and harpoons. A student from the University of Cape Town developed a method that would equip spacecrafts with nitinol tentacles. And the European Space Agency has also been working on a space claw that would function similarly to Astroscale's magnet. So what method will privateer choose? Harpoons? Tentacles? Space claws? We'll have to wait for their big announcement at the Amos Tech Conference to know for sure, but I have to say, if Gizmodo is right, this is a very refreshing announcement from a famous rich dude-funded private space company. 
Ghostbusters Afterlife is coming out November 19th here in the U.S., at least for now. Sony has pushed back the release date a number of times due to the pandemic. Despite the eternal delay, it's gotten decent reviews so far, saying that it's nostalgia done right and honors the legacy of the original two films, which is perhaps due in part to the fact that it's actually directed by the son of the original film's director, who himself is a producer of this new one. And one way that Ghostbusters Afterlife will riff on the original movies but with its own new spin is the introduction of miniature versions of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Now, while the original was transfigured from a 2D logo to an eight-story tall anthropomorphic manifestation of the villainous god Gozer wreaking havoc upon midtown Manhattan, these new mini-ones are seen in a preview clip climbing out of their manufacturing bag and terrorizing a grocery store, much to the shock and consternation of Paul Rudd's character, Mr. Gruberson. So the legacy of one of my personal favorite icons from cinema and Saturday morning cartoons will live on in one way or another. But writer Brian Van Hooker over at Mel Magazine, reflecting on the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and his progeny last week, started wondering a question so sensible I can't believe I'd never asked it myself. How many s'mores could the original Stay Puft Marshmallow Man be made into? And despite the obviousness of this question, it seems based on a cursory Google search that no one had really taken the time to calculate it before. So Van Hooker called up mathematician James Hind of Nottingham Trent University, who took the question so seriously. I mean, really, if you click the link in the show notes, there are accompanying diagrams and everything. It's great. So basically what you've got to do is figure out the volume of the entire Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man and then divide that by the volume of an average marshmallow, one that you would use for a s'more. The Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man in the movies is described by the special effects team as being 112 and a half feet tall, although notably the novelization of the film cuts him off at an even 100. But for the purposes of making everything harder, Van Hooker and Hind stuck to 112 and a half. Here's what Hind said, quote, First, we can split this guy into the following parts. Hat, head, torso, two upper arms, two forearms, two hands, eight fingers, two thighs, two shins, and two feet. For each part, we need a shape to use as a model. For the thighs, shins, feet, and upper arms, we'll use an oblate spheroid. The equation for the volume of an oblate spheroid is four-thirds pi a squared c. The forearms, hat, head, hands, and fingers have straighter edges, so we'll use cylinders. The equation for the volume of a cylinder is R squared H. Since we know the Stay Puffed Man is 112 and a half feet high, we can add a grid to get measurements for the different sections. End quotes. He then put a VFX mock-up of the Stay Puffed Man on such a grid and made estimates for some parts, but they remained accurately relative to each other thanks to the grid. For example, quoting again, The hat is about 3 feet high, with a radius of 10 feet, making it 942 and a third cubic feet. As for the head, Hind estimated that it was 20 feet high, with a radius of 14 feet, making it 12,312.7 cubic feet. End quote. Apparently, the atypical shape of the Stay Puffed Man's torso made things a little tricky there, but Hind just used an approach based on the volume of a solid of revolution to plot the slight S-shaped curve of his side and rotate it. Which, yeah, that's exactly what I would recommend. That's what I would have done too, totally. The Stay Puffed Man's final volume, according to Hind's calculations, 151,960.2 cubic feet. But... 
While his entire body is made of mallow, his accessories, like his neckerchief and hat, aren't. Van Hooker also decided that maybe his mouth and pupils aren't marshmallow either, so subtracting all of that, the final, final volume is 151,772.2 cubic feet. Now... Based on a series of measurements of the popular Jet Puffed brand of marshmallows, Van Hooker determined an average marshmallow is one and an eighth inches tall with a diameter of one inch, which was enough for Hind to calculate that from the giant gozer-possessed Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man in the original Ghostbusters, you could safely make 296,876,280 s'mores. Given that you're using just one marshmallow per s'more, as most recipes and good taste recommend. So just under 300 million s'mores. You know how at the end of the movie, when the Stay Puft Man explodes, sending huge globs of marshmallow raining down on all the people, cars, and buildings in Manhattan? If the city had been resourceful, they could have fed upwards of 40 s'mores to every person in New York City. I mean, you know what they say, when life gives you torrents of melted marshmallow pelted down from the heavens make s'mores yeah that that's the joke and i'm sticking to it so as i record today's episode all of the news is starting to trickle in about apple's announcements at their big event today if you want a rundown of everything go give a listen to today's episode of our sister show the tech meme ride home hosted by brian mccullough who will have all the details you need and more But that is it here for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.